Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Today marks one year in office for Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, and quite a few things have changed in the state from this date in 2019. Adult-use recreational marijuana is now legal. Major upgrades are in the works on roads and public transit. Sports betting and more casinos are coming. And there's a new focus on criminal justice reform. Later in the show, we'll hear more from Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton about criminal justice reform efforts and what Illinoisans can expect moving forward. Education and food insecurity, mental health services, and really just thinking about all of the factors that go into play that might make certain communities over-policed, over-criminalized. And Governor Pritzker knew from the start that the state's recreational marijuana rollout would be a heavy lift. Well, we anticipated that there would be uh, challenges because, um, look, we're trying to do something that no other state has done. Uh, There have been 10 states that have legalized cannabis for adult use, um, and all of them have failed on the social equity front, making sure that the people who have been most ill-affected by the war on drugs actually would benefit from the legalization. So we took a tactic that said uh, we want to make sure that we're leaving open the possibility that people of color, people from communities that have been left out and left behind, have real opportunity to get licenses to own dispensaries to own transportation, to own the growing facilities. So all of that has been reserved so that we're rolling out the licenses over time. So there now are 700 applications that have come in for 75 licenses that will be issued in May. 600 of the 700 applications that have come in are people who are social equity applicants. We've been talking to people who are helping social equity applicants through that process, and they've expressed concern about those applications ending up in business relationships that don't leave them with true ownership or autonomy. What are your long-term plans for ensuring that there is equity in this industry? Well, long-term plans here are first to make sure that there is majority ownership by people who are qualified as social equity applicants. Number two is to make sure that, as you're saying, that there aren't any straw purchasers or straw owners. You know, we don't want that to occur. We want to make sure that we're creating opportunity in the communities that we're intended to. Remember, there are other aspects of social equity beyond just ownership. The fact that, you know, we are pardoning and expunging the records of tens of thousands of people. We're eliminating the arrest records of even more. Um, And that's also a piece of the social equity of this bill. Uh, So there's a lot of work that we're doing that's, you know, maybe not getting a lot of attention, but that are the major pieces of this. I said from the beginning, Jen, that I'm in favor of legalized adult use cannabis for three reasons. You know, the last of those reasons is the money, the revenue that would come in that people are paying attention to now. The first of those, though, is the criminal justice reform aspects of it, making sure that we're doing what we need to do to reverse the damage that was done by the war on cannabis. And the second reason is safety. We have to make sure that the products that are being sold are, in fact, safe for people to use. You saw that there were people dying, in fact, from the use of illegally manufactured THC vaping devices. We don't want that to happen in Illinois. And so now we've got legal, well-manufactured, safe 
products that are on the market. Well, a gambling expansion that could bring Illinois an additional $350 million in revenue a year is getting started. Eventually, we'll have six new casinos, thousands more poker and slot machines, enhanced uh, racetrack gambling, sports betting. Uh, that'll go live sometime this year. Why was it a priority for you to make Illinois uh, what the Tribune recently called a Midwest gambling mecca? Well, it, that wasn't the priority. The priority was to make sure that we were paying the dollars that are required to build the buildings, community centers, schools, universities all across the state in our capital bill. That was the purpose ultimately for the revenue that would come from an expansion of gaming. The city of Chicago, uh, once they're able to open a casino, will benefit from the ownership or the dollars from it going into their pensions. That ultimately yields benefit to the taxpayers of the city of Chicago. Um, That's happening already in the places where they've got casinos already in existence. Uh, So that was really the purpose of the expansion of gaming. Well, you mentioned the casino in Chicago. We know Mayor Lightfoot was unsuccessful in her efforts to lobby a change in the law and to make the taxes more beneficial for someone who wants to open a casino in Chicago. What's on the horizon there when it comes to making Chicago a place where a casino could actually be profitable? Well, as you know, there was an attempt to pass a bill during the veto session. There are only six days of a veto session, so it's very hard to get things done in six days. And uh, the mayor did a lot to try to get that done during the veto session. But I'm working with her for the main session here in the spring to make sure that we can get a bill passed. It's very important for the city. It also yields revenue for the rest of the state. So many of the Republicans and people who've opposed it have opposed it in part because, oh, it seems like a giveaway to the city of Chicago. It's not. It's actually beneficial for the entire state. Those schools, those universities that are being rebuilt are in part going to be rebuilt from the tax dollars that come from the gaming that is a result of all the people visiting Chicago from out of town who will go to that casino. So you think it's likely that we'll be able to get that change in the law that will make a a profitable casino possible in Chicago? I am optimistic. And again, it takes a lot of work to get things done in Springfield. It's very different than the city council. You've got to work across the aisle. You've got to bring people together. It's how we got all the big things done that we were able to do last year. And so we're going to work on that in the spring session, bringing people together around this. While you had many wins in your first year, there are multiple federal investigations into political corruption in Illinois right now. And many of the targets are Democrats. What are you doing to address corruption in Springfield? Will we see any meaningful ethics reforms in 2020? Yeah, and you know that the corruption, not just in the legislature, but in every level of government in the state, that it's not a partisan issue. You know, we've seen Republican governors go to prison. We've seen Democratic governor go to prison. We've seen uh, legislators get in trouble with the law on both sides of the aisle. So it's why having a bipartisan uh, ethics commission addressing the ethics legislation needs is so important. But I didn't wait for that. In the uh, veto session, in fact, I proposed and got passed a uh, lobbying reform. You know that this is a significant issue of corruption these days. I wanted to make sure that we have more transparency so we know who the subcontractor lobbyists are. We know who the lobbyists are really working for, what companies they're working for, and what influence they're wielding over legislators and which legislators. So we have a new database with all of that information that will be made public to people that's being put together now. Uh, We also 
also are requiring more disclosure. These are huge, important advances in the lobbying front, but there's so much more that we've got to address to make sure that we're cleaning up Springfield. I want every single one of these legislators that are doing something wrong and every person, frankly, around the state serving in a public office. If they are committing wrongdoing, they should leave. They should go. And we should root them out and get them out if they won't go on their own. Are there one or two other specific reforms you'd like to advocate for in 2020? Well, again, this is about transparency, ultimately, because we have laws on the books to prosecute people when you discover the wrongdoing. And maybe there are some tightening up that needs to be done in that regard. But the problem really is it's very hard sometimes to see what it is they're doing wrong. The things that have been discovered and made public are things that are already illegal and that the federal government just was able to do an investigation and surface. But really, it should be the public and the press that's able to find this information. And ultimately, we want the voters to make the decision. They should ask themselves, are the legislators and their mayors and others who represent them, are they in fact representing the public or are they representing their own pockets? And from my perspective, anybody that's not serving the public interest when they've been elected to public office, they've got to go. Much of what we've talked about so far was passed during a blockbuster spring legislative session and a lot of folks calling it historic. One measure that passed was a plan for a graduated state income tax where taxes increase significantly for the top 3% of income earners. Now, this still has to go before voters in November 2020 because it'll require a change to the state constitution. But why do you believe this is the right move for Illinois? Well, we have a very unfair tax system in the state. We have a flat income tax system and a very regressive other set of taxes, the result of which is that people in the top tax brackets pay half of what people in the bottom tax brackets pay. In other words, those who are earning in the bottom 20% in Illinois pay 14% of their income to taxes, but people in the top are paying 7%. That's not fair. And the income tax is one way in which you can make a difference in terms of making the system fairer. So that's why I fought for having the legislature pass it in the spring session to put it on the ballot so ultimately voters can decide. Well, I want to turn to what is really the elephant in the room. I mean, marijuana, casinos, even the graduated income tax, those will help potentially with year-to-year budgeting. But we also have the worst pension crisis in the nation, $137 billion in unfunded pension liabilities by state estimates. Uh, Moody's Investor Service suggests that it's even higher. What will your administration do to address the pension crisis? Look, pensions in our state are an enormously important issue, and I've made it a priority. It's why uh, in this last session, in fact, I managed to get past a major pension reform for first responders. It's going to save taxpayers across the state billions of dollars, and it will help to lower the burden of property taxes on people in municipalities and counties across our state. Uh, We have a large issue in our state pension systems that also needs to be addressed, and I got a major bill passed last year that expands a program that buys out at a discount people who choose to have their retirement bought out, their pensions bought out. It buys it out at a 40% discount, 60% of their value, only if they choose, um, and they want all the money up front. 
And it's good for taxpayers. It's good for people who choose it, who might want that money right now. So that's one of the ways in which we're beginning to reduce the overall increase in our net pension liability. But this is something we're going to have to work on for years because it took decades for the state to get in the situation that we're in. It's going to take us at least a few years to start to turn the pension problem around. That's Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker reflecting on his first year in office, which he marks today, and telling us what to expect from his administration this year. Governor Pritzker, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Jen. Another priority for Governor Pritzker's administration, criminal justice reform. Two weeks ago, just before adult use cannabis became legal, Pritzker issued more than 11,000 pardons for people with low-level marijuana convictions, a move he hopes will make the emerging cannabis market more equitable. Meanwhile, Governor Pritzker and our next guest, Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton, have worked on what's known as the Justice, Equity, and Opportunity Initiative. That's an effort to study issues like cash bail, sentencing and incarceration work in Illinois, and how they can be improved. And the Lieutenant Governor views this as a cornerstone of her public service. So the Justice, Equity, and Opportunity Initiative is really about how we have to think about justice beyond just policing jails and prisons. A lot of times that conversation gets very limited and we think about this big system that of course has grown thanks to mass incarceration and really some failed policies like the failed war on drugs. And so when we talk about addressing sort of these social determinants, it's really about thinking about all of the different factors that exist and what happens in communities and environments and what are the products of really uh, decades of disinvestment that we've seen in communities across our state. And so the goal is really to say, going beyond that, what else is a part of the justice conversation? How about things like access to affordable health care, access to housing, education and food insecurity, mental health services, and really just thinking about all of the factors that go into play that might make certain communities over-policed, over-criminalized, and really how do we think about this more comprehensively as we think about how to pursue justice in our state? Early childhood education emerged as part of this process of addressing the social determinants of of crime and incarceration. Mm -hmm. How did that fit into this conversation? So we have some really exciting things that we're thinking about around early childhood education. First of all, in conjunction with uh, Representative Delia Ramirez, we have a Children of Incarcerated Parents Task Force that is being uh, staffed by my office to really look at, in partnership with JEO, what are the particular issues that we see for children of incarcerated parents. A lot of times we talk about the adults, but there are so many children in our state. When we say that we have 40,000 men and women in our Illinois Department of Corrections, many of these people, if not most, are parents. And so what happens to this next generation and what do we need to be doing in communities and strategically through our policymaking to make sure that we do not continue a generational cycle of incarceration and touching the justice system. And by the way, when I say touching the justice system. It's not just the parents, but children of incarcerated parents already have touched this system. And that makes them, of course, at greater risk of being entangled in this system in the future. So we want to make sure that we're addressing it from that standpoint. 
We are also uh, working in partnership with the Erickson Institute with a new fellowships program, a leadership fellowship program funded by the McCormick Foundation around early childhood education and the issue of trauma and the criminal justice system. So I was one of the leadership fellows uh, several years ago with the Erickson Institute and McCormick Foundation to look at early childhood education, but I wanted to bring together a cohort of individuals to really think about this in the context of what does early childhood education mean as we think about the criminal justice system? And so when we think about infant mental health, and that's not often a term people think about, I think when I was uh, here before, I talked about the bill that I led to end preschool expulsion because Mm -hmm. three and four-year-olds were getting expelled from preschool, disproportionately black and brown youth. And that kind of leads to sort of instead of a school-to-prison pipeline, a preschool-to-prison pipeline. And so what do we need to do for early childhood education? to make sure that we are addressing these developing minds of these young children to make sure that they don't end up in the system or if their families have touched the system, that we can make sure that the protective factors around them are in place so that they don't have that same path. Another goal is to improve equitable deflection and diversion opportunities from the justice system. Explain what you're doing in that space. So what I always like to talk about is, you know, there's a lot of conversation around when we talk about criminal justice reform, people bring up the term re-entry, and they talk about how important it is that when people exit the system that there are ways that they can connect to jobs and housing and health care and other things that they need so that they don't cycle in and out of the system. The way that I look at this conversation is that we have to put far more emphasis Yes, we have to talk about reentry, but far more emphasis on no entry. How do we keep people out of the system in the first place? And it sort of goes back to what the JEO is all about, and that is thinking about justice and equity and opportunity more broadly. We cannot have justice without equity and opportunity. So how do we create opportunity in communities so that people can have access to affordable housing? How do people get access to health care and job opportunities or career and technical education if they want to go into trades and other professions. How do we do that on the front end so that people can stay out of the system on the back end? So when we're working with all of the agencies in the state of Illinois to make sure that we can think very intentionally around what needs to happen as we think about policymaking, as we think about what communities need. And we've engaged with over 500 different community stakeholders, stakeholders over the last year to make sure we're hearing directly from communities about what they need to make sure that we can have more of a focus on building up the community and keeping people out of the system in the first place. You've also made it a goal to improve the conditions and address the needs of vulnerable populations in correctional facilities. First, who falls under that umbrella of vulnerable populations? Well, for me, anybody who is in the system is in some way a vulnerable population. I mean, I've spent a lot of time over this last year because it was important to me to not talk about criminal justice reform without talking to the people who are in the system. So I spoke at a graduation, for example, of seven men who graduated from Northeastern University with a bachelor's degree, and the graduation was held at Stateville Prison. Um, And their stories were powerful about the work that they were doing to 
improve their lives, to rehabilitate, and to be on a path of really just growing as human beings. And I was honored to speak at that graduation. There were about 200 other gentlemen who were in the audience, and their family members were there as well, all of whom were very proud of these seven men who were examples of what could happen as they studied and really worked to improve their lives. After that meeting, I went back and met with a group of men and sat in circle with a group of men who were now pursuing their master's degrees and everything from criminal justice policy to American jurisprudence. And I heard their stories about what circumstances were that led them to be incarcerated. I've been to the Illinois Youth Center under the Department of Juvenile Justice in Harrisburg and listened to young people. I've been to Cook County Jail and talked to women, including those who delivered their babies while they were incarcerated. I've been to Logan Women's Correctional Center. So I've been going to these institutions throughout our state because it's important to listen directly to the people who are there. And I can say that almost without a doubt, when we talk about those social determinants, without exception, I've heard stories of trauma and I've heard stories of how I'm not the first person to be involved in this system. I had a parent who was incarcerated or a brother who was incarcerated or I saw a best friend get murdered in front of my face. These are the kinds of stories that must be lifted up and be told because when we think about how to improve conditions within our facilities, we have to recognize, number one, that each person that is in our facility is a human being and deserving of humane treatment. But secondly, that there's so much trauma that leads people into this system, whether it's a young person in our juvenile justice system or an adult in the adult system, that the efforts that we put forward have to make sure that we are addressing those needs as well. Lieutenant Governor, I want to turn to some recent news from the administration on criminal justice reform, and that's the governor's announcement to end cash bail. Tell us about those plans. Yes, so this is very exciting because when we think about the justice system, and as I mentioned, 40,000 people being in our Illinois Department of Corrections, we know that there has to be a focus on what is happening at the county level and the local levels with county jails. We see so many people lingering in our county jails across the state simply because they cannot afford to post bond. And that's been an issue that has been discussed and has been looked at for many years. Many legislators have attempted to make some progress on this issue through legislation. And there are lots of advocates and organizers who have been working in this space. But what we do know is that bond was created and this bail system was created really and pretrial detention was created for two reasons, that people are being detained in our jails or under the statute should be detained in our jails if they are a threat to public safety or if they are a flight risk. And those are the two conditions. But what has happened over time, because this has been attached to whether or not someone can pay a certain amount, and remember, that's not an issue of public safety. If a judge says, you can get out and go back to your community and continue working and continue going to school and be connected with your family and all of those other things, you can do that if you pay this amount of money. Well, that's not an issue of public safety because the judge has already made a determination that that person can go back to the community. But what happens is they end up lingering in the jail because there are some people that $1,000 or even $100 might as well be a million dollars because they couldn't afford it in any level. If they called everyone that they knew, they couldn't come up with that amount of money. So by putting us on the path 
to getting to a point when we can end cash bail in our state. The reason why that's such an important development around justice reform is because what it will mean is that instead of just keeping people in our jails because they can't afford to get out, they will be more of a focus on really the public safety aspects and more people will be able to do the things that we know help increase public safety, which is continue working, continue going to school, continue to be connected to their families and communities. You've gotten some pushback from law enforcement and some prosecutors who shared concerns in the past year around ending cash bail. And they say it may put domestic violence victims at risk. Also, they point to other unintended consequences, uh, such as revenue for local courts and their victim services. How do you navigate those concerns? I think we navigate it the same way that the governor and I have tried to navigate this first historic legislative session, which is we got some really big things done, some things that had been talked about for years, such as the legalization of adult use of cannabis, such as raising the minimum wage and all of the other things that we did. We did that by making sure that we are inclusive of all of the stakeholders and making sure that we have conversations. Governor Pritzker does such a great job in his leadership of our state as he says all the time, good ideas come from everywhere. And the way that we have to govern, and that's the approach that we've taken, is to bring all of the stakeholders together and make sure that we have these conversations. To put out a vision of what we want to happen and what we want to see happen means that um, there are some things that we want to see for our state that we believe will bring justice and equity to our state. But it doesn't mean that we're shutting out all of the other dissenting voices. What it means that we want to bring voices to the table so that we can have the best outcome possible. And that means including law enforcement and others who may have some concern to make sure that we hear those concerns and figure out if there are some ways to address those concerns. We'll do that in this case, too. Well, criminal justice reform, or really any reform, isn't just about what's happening right now. It's about creating systems that can be sustained, ones that last beyond any given administration. How do you hope to create that kind of lasting change? Well, I think that what we've demonstrated, and this is why when we talk about sort of a legislative agenda and some of the things we want to do, whether it's putting us on the path to ending cash bail, whether it's looking at um, how do we reform outdated sentencing laws, whether it's what we did with what I think was one of the biggest criminal justice reform efforts of this first year, which was the legalization of adult use cannabis. There were things that were put into that legislation and the way that we will address legislation moving forward, which is meant to be sustainable. We recognize that during any four-year term, especially when you're looking at trying to reverse or repair the harm from decades of failed policymaking that got us to this place that we are, which is mass incarceration and disinvestment of so many communities, what's important is that we think about the long-range goals, that things that we are doing now are not always going to be easy. They require that we are very thoughtful and methodical about how we address these issues. But I think that we do so also with a level of urgency and that there have been people who have been talking about these reform efforts for a long time. And now we have leadership in our state that is willing to be courageous and to be bold. And quickly, just before we wrap up, 2020, what's on your agenda? Oh, well, 2020, we're going to continue with the work that we talked about in terms of, you know, early childhood education and getting that fellowship going, the work to end cash bail. I'm going to continue the work on our Alzheimer's uh, Through Our Eyes campaign and really making sure that we address issues to make Illinois a dementia-capable state. And we're going to continue to work on making sure that we 
promote justice, equity, and opportunity throughout our state and making sure that on every level, uh, in my office in particular, we'll be taking on youth mental health. That's a big issue to address the trauma that so many young people face in our state that prevents them from being as productive as they could be in school, from being on the path to a successful career. We want to address the mental health concerns and needs of young people so that they can be healthy because healthy children, healthy families means a healthy Illinois. That's Juliana Stratton, Lieutenant Governor of Illinois. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Reset. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back tomorrow with a brand new Reset. So watch your feed so we can talk again soon.